Thanks for downloading this episode of Backstory, which takes us to Wakanda, discusses the controversial reputation of inventor Thomas Edison, and explains how Billy Graham became the confidant of American presidents. If you enjoy this episode, visit us at BackstoryRadio.org. There's plenty more where this comes from. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Nathan Connolly. I'm Ed Ayers. Each week, Brian Ballow, Nathan, Ed, and I, all historians, take a topic from the headlines and try to understand how we got here. Today on the podcast, Visions of Haiti in Wakanda and how the reputation of Thomas Edison has been flickering like a faulty light bulb. But first, as you may have seen, the evangelist Billy Graham died this week at the age of 99. Graham's journey took him from preaching in a tent in revivalist crusades all the way to the White House as spiritual advisor to 13 American presidents. In the 1940s, when Graham came into the scene, there were uh, dozens of uh, conspicuous uh, revivalists, and by 1950, there was no competition. This is Grant Wacker, a historian at Duke and the author of a recent book on Graham. He says this sea change can be pinpointed to one particular event in the fall of 1949. That's when Billy Graham, this itinerant preacher from North Carolina, pitched his tent in Los Angeles. The revival, which he actually called a crusade, was supposed to be a three-week stint. In the beginning, the crusade did not fare well. The attendance was mediocre, and uh, Graham and his associates became uh, discouraged. Like any good preacher, Graham prayed for something to happen. Hoping for divine intervention, he kept his tent pitched for one more week. And it was in the fourth week that uh, Graham came into the uh, tent one afternoon, and uh, there were reporters all over. Reporters started writing down his comments, and he was astonished. He was a very young man at this point, in his early 30s. Bulbs are are popping, and these reporters are taking notes. And so uh, he asked, naturally, you know, what's happened here? Why are you writing down everything uh, that, I, that I'm saying? And one of the reporters uh, said to him, you have been kissed by William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst, owner of a newspaper empire and all-around media mogul. He had apparently told his reporters to start writing articles about Graham's L.A. gathering. Uh, almost immediately, the Los Angeles Times, which Hearst did not own, picked it up. Within a few days, Time magazine picked it up, uh, then Life magazine, and the story went to Europe and it went to Asia. The press attention attracted scores of gawkers, many of whom came out out of pure curiosity. But the crowds continued to build. Graham's popularity, Wacker says, was contagious. The kind of truck stop mentality. If there are a lot of cars parked outside, a lot of trucks, this must be good. The press presented this as a landmark in the history of American revivalism. 
Soon, a space that could seat 3,000 was expanded to accommodate 9,000. On one occasion, it was estimated that another 15,000 stood outside listening. And what of the man at the center of all this attention? Well, the content of Graham's sermons wasn't all that unique. He hit all the familiar notes of revival preaching, troubles of the world, personal issues, personal salvation. What set Graham apart was his presence and his delivery. He was tall, handsome, and commanding. His voice boomed at a lightning clip. Here's a sample from the L.A. Revival. And I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost part of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Stenographers clocked his preaching at 240 words a minute. Very, very rapidly uh, pronounced. And he did that deliberately because he felt that successful newscasters uh, spoke very, very rapidly. He also was loud and at volume gave the sermon a commanding quality. Uh, he was animated. He paced the uh, platform. By one account, he often paced a full mile in the course of a sermon. And then uh, the gestures. Uh, with his fists, uh, fingers uh, stabbing outward. One reporter said he had uh, the energy of a coiled panther. And I hope that Jesus designates to me a little part of Los Angeles. There are a few things I'd like to clean up around this town if he could put me in charge. Peppering his sermons were appearances from figures sure to play well in glitzy L.A. Radio personalities, actresses, and athletes took turns testifying to the power of Graham's message. The word of the satisfied customer, to put it in marketing terms. And he understood that this was more powerful than any kind of technical theological apologetic. And all of this gave the press yet another story to tell. Newspapers across the country and around the world were fascinated by the fascination with Graham. The revival, originally slotted for a three-week run, lasted for two months. And uh, by the end of the crusade, Graham was an international commodity. By now, Billy Graham was a popular evangelical minister with a national following. But he was about to become the confidant and spiritual advisor of presidents. But the ambitious young minister's first meeting with President Harry S. Truman didn't go so well. He asked Truman about his spiritual life. And uh, Truman said something to the effect that he tried to live by the golden rule. And then Graham said, well, that's not good enough. You need to make a commitment to Jesus Christ. And we don't know what Truman said to that, but— uh, We can imagine what he thought. Yeah, well, yeah, that's not hard to imagine. <laughs> but um, uh, at some point in the conversation, Graham asked Truman if he, that is, Graham, could pray with Truman. And Truman said, uh, well, I don't suppose it could do any harm. <laughs> so you get a sense of the drift of the conversation here. It was an awkward meeting, and to make things worse... Graham made the egregious mistake of telling the press everything <laughs> that was said. And he had no idea that you don't blab to reporters what the president says in the Oval Office. And Truman never forgave him. Graham had better luck with Truman's successor, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Their relationship began when Graham encouraged the general to run for the White House in 1952. 
He said, Eisenhower, you are the only man who could possibly save America from a moral ruin. You are the man for the hour. And I mean, it was wildly exaggerated statements. And and many years later in his autobiography, uh, Graham said, no one ever accused me of understatement in those years. Graham's fears of moral ruin were in part a product of the Cold War. Graham was a strident anti-communist. Graham saw communism as a religion, literally a demonic religion. For some time, I've been stating to this radio audience that communism is far more than just an economic and political interpretation of life. This is Billy Graham in a 1951 radio address. Communism is a fanatical religion of atheism. This atheistic philosophy is paralleling and counterfeiting Christianity. Millions of Americans agreed with Graham's anti-communism, including Eisenhower, who constructed an image of America as a spiritual counterweight to the godless Soviet Union. Eisenhower, who wasn't publicly religious before his presidency, asked Graham for Bible verses that he could drop into campaign speeches. And after Eisenhower came to Washington, Graham persuaded him to join a Presbyterian church in the Capitol. Wacker says that during the presidential years, Eisenhower's faith became ever more public and political. Eisenhower marked a transition. And quite interestingly, communism had a great deal to do with both Graham's success and Eisenhower's. It all seems counterintuitive. How does the purportedly godless, atheistic menace of communism enable presidents to use religion for their purposes? Graham helped create the public space that presidents embraced. But ever thereafter, we all know what every president's religious identity is. This is public knowledge. In the mid-1950s, Eisenhower also persuaded Congress to add under God to the Pledge of Allegiance and in God we trust to the currency. After Eisenhower, Graham remained an honored guest at the White House. He was friendly with Democratic President John F. Kennedy and was quite close to Lyndon Johnson. Wacker says that these relationships, like Graham's connections with other presidents, were mutually beneficial. Graham received publicity and presidents received legitimation. That is, Americans were looking for people who are broadly, generally religious, and therefore they could trust them because they had higher values. And this is what Graham brought to the presidents. Grant Wacker of Duke University. I'm Billy Graham, who has died at the age of 99. Let's move on to our next topic. The opening weekend of Marvel Comics' latest blockbuster, Black Panther, has brought in an estimated $361 million around the world. Now, that's small change, of course, in the fabulously wealthy kingdom of Wakanda. But as Nathan explains, the mythical African country where the adventure is set draws on a rich tradition of imagining places on the globe where black people can run their own affairs. Nathan? Last September, President Trump delivered a speech at the United Nations in which he praised the healthcare system of the African state of Nambia. The only problem was that Nambia doesn't exist. 
Trump, in his remarks, seemed to mangle the names of real-life African countries, Zambia and Namibia, with who knows, maybe a bit of Nigeria. This month, Americans have become obsessed with the imagined African nation of Wakanda, homeland and kingdom of the latest hero in the series of Marvel Studios' blockbusters, The Black Panther. Cinemas across the country have been selling out, with moviegoers wearing dashikis and futuristic costumes, playing African drums, and even dancing in theater lobbies in celebration of the Black Panther and its fictional kingdom. Think Star Wars meets Alex Haley's roots. As depicted, Wakanda boasts a miracle element, vibranium, and with it, a level of advancement that eclipses the non-existent Nambia, the United States, and any other nation on Earth, real or imaginary. Vibranium recalls the gold, rubber, and diamonds pillaged from Africa for the enrichment of the Imperial West, and it raises the question about what would have happened if Africans stayed in control of their own resources. Vibranium makes Wakanda a land of invisible airships, floating trains, miracle medicine, and whole cities hidden from view under massive holograms. And yet, even with its fantastical elements, Wakanda stands squarely within history. I spoke with Millery Polonais, who teaches Caribbean and American history at New York University. A filmmaker and specialist in global black culture and politics, Polonais' sense of Black Panther's fictional kingdom stands informed by the history of actual kingdoms, dreams of freedom as old as Atlantic slavery, and the history of black popular culture. We discussed what a place like Wakanda, vibranium and all, says about the history of real-life struggles over natural resources and national independence in majority black countries. How indeed might a trip to 21st century Wakanda actually begin in the 18th century Caribbean? So you have to start at the the start of the Haitian Revolution, August 1791, in which in the north of Haiti, which you have over the long 13 years of the revolution, thousands of Africans and Creoles who are rising up against the French plantocracy and trying to overturn it and trying to find ways to be free. And mm -hmm. so... The word is spreading throughout the Americas, and that's that's an important piece of the puzzle in, in talking about the Haitian Revolution. And the word about the impossibility of African-descended peoples rising up against uh, slaveholders in the 19th century was seen as, Trio would say, unthinkable. And so mm. when these words and these ideas are spreading throughout the Americas, you know, from Colombia to Cuba to... Dominican Republic and throughout the, the U.S. South, African-Americans within the, in the U.S. Are, see this place as, as a possibility of, of, wow, this can happen. Uh, black folks are, are able to resist and to, right. and, and to fight and that it is possible to, uh, to overturn the system and to start uh, a sort of radical anti-slavery movement. And this uh, sparks the imagination of, of, of many people in the, in the U.S., and mm -hmm. particularly black folks who are enslaved. Now, Wakanda is not a democracy. It's a monarchy. And, and wasn't there an actual precedent for imagining black kingdoms, even in the Americas? A free Haiti actually began as a monarchy, if I remember, right? Right, so you have Emperor Jean-Jacques Dessalines, uh, Faustin Souluk. They see themselves as as kings and and mm. kings and queens, and they want to establish this system of government based upon uh, European style of government at the time of the uh, through the you know the early modern and and and, and modern period mm -hmm. of, of of a monarchy. 
And some say that this was, you know, why do they have to establish that, that, that type of system of government? Whereas uh, the everyday Haitian themselves, post-emancipation or you know, post-independence, they could care less, <laughs> quite honestly, in terms right. of, you know, this system of government and really wanted to establish, you know, their own sort of local, uh, sort of local rule and not, and not sort of adhere to uh, a government system that was uh, within the European system and within the Haitian system uh, became repressive. Right. How much you describe the way that American artists, you know, of African descent, thought about the continent, how they dreamed on it with their political aspirations? Was it a question in film or in visual arts or in music that could really be considered maybe the dominant theme of the way that black art took shape in the 20th century? I first think about culturally the ways in which African Americans have uh, envisioned and dreamt about uh African politics and African independence, particularly during the post-independence period. Mm -hmm. I think about people like Max Roach and Abby Lincoln as a jazz head. I'm thinking about their work um, in which, you know, Abby Lincoln has this wonderful song called Africa and she's dreaming about all these different places. And this is all a part of this African-American sort of political dreaming as as part of this diaspora. Mm -hmm. And so on a cultural aspect... You have, you know, jazz uh, musicians who want to make that connection, who are part of this uh, uh, this Pan-African civil rights black power moment of the 1960s that is, that is so very important. Then you have, you know, the, 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 the political dreamings of Malcolm X, right? right. Who travels throughout the continent uh, to Ghana and to Egypt. Uh, you know, you have, you know, Egyptian... Uh, officials who are, uh, you know, sponsoring and, um, uh, you know, helping Malcolm, you know, travel throughout the throughout the nation, uh, throughout Egypt and other parts of of Africa, and so Malcolm is thinking about what are the ways in which we can uh, sort of build these these sort of solidarity movements, these political uh, solidarity movements that are so important to uh, a remaking of uh, African American consciousness. Uh, and then you go back to the 19th century, uh, 19th and early 20th century, in which um, African Americans are moving uh, into Liberia um, and other parts of West Africa, uh, being uh, either forced there or or choosing to to move back in order to, uh, in many ways, uh, civilize. They're on a sort of civilizationist sort of project, right. uh, which is quite problematic. At the same time, wanting to uh, is it's also seen as a going home. Is it possible that this, you know, bit of fantasy or Afrofuturism, which I think can safely be said is a long tradition in African-American thought and really American thought, um, that it could lead to future films in which the African-American experience, history, the history of black revolutions might actually have greater depth, diversity, or representation? Well, that's my, definitely my hope. Mm. This film has a tremendous amount of potential. So many people are excited about it. I told my son, we're going to miss school <laughs> that, that, that night, and, and that is okay. And, uh, and it is my hope that, you know, a few more films uh, that deal with, um, you know, black superheroes, black life, in this dreamy way, in this uh, fictional uh, capacity, 
that they come out. But by no means do I want, you know, a string of Black Panther films. I mean, some people may, but I just feel like there's just, just so much complexity mm-hmm. in, 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 in African-descended people's lives that, you know, it's way beyond sort of, you know, the comic book sort of superhero genre. Melory Polonais is Associate Dean at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at New York University. Thomas Edison has long been considered an American hero, but recently Edison's reputation has taken a battering. That's why we're going to look at Edison in a new segment we're calling, appropriately enough, Reputations. Thomas Alva Edison was nicknamed the Wizard of Menlo Park and hailed as the greatest inventor in American history. But today he's seen by many as a ruthless businessman who stole the ideas of others sidelined his rival Nikola Tesla in the 1880s War of the Currents, that's direct current versus alternating current, and shockingly electrocuted an elephant. What is the truth about Edison? We invited Edison biographer Paul Israel and Tesla biographer Bernie Carlson to join us in the studio. Now, what we learn in school is that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. So is that true or not? Paul? Uh, but the answer to both those questions <laughs> is yes. <laughs> Aha, and, it's, and it's yes in this sense, that people had been working on incandescent lighting in terms of uh, patenting ideas for incandescent lighting for 40 years before Edison. So it's not a new concept. And people had developed various kinds of incandescent lamps that worked in a laboratory sense. The problem was, how do you have incandescent lighting in a commercial sense that's economical enough, long-lasting enough, that it's possible for people to have this in everyday use? And that's what Edison accomplished by not seeing it just as a problem of how do I invent an incandescent lamp, but how does an incandescent lamp fit into a distribution system that's cheap enough that... I can actually provide light at a cost that people can afford. And that's what he did. So we're, we're ta- when we're talking about Edison, we have to, and we're talking about his reputation, what we're partly saying is that we have to think a lot more about what we're talking about, the invention as being. That's right. You know, it's, it's easy to sort of imagine that that invention is simply coming up with that very first artifact and that that is the person who is the genius and is the creative, does the the creative heavy lifting. And we need a broader definition or notion of of invention that is from conceptualization through what they call in the patent office reduction to practice. You can have the idea, but can you actually build one that works? And Edison is almost unique in that he is able to do brilliant things at the benchtop. I think a lot of times when people get started on this, oh, Edison just steals from people and he just, oh, he's just really an industrialist. They haven't actually gone back and sort of looked at the thousands of pages of notebooks 
that Edison hmm. filled up with sketches and they approach in their richness the the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci. And in, in, when we think about Edison's reputation, we don't want to do it in a binary sort of way. Oh, you're either the industrialist, you're doing the business thing, or you're just a geek <laughs> in the laboratory with the, you know, with the, you know, with the beat up old glasses and the lab coat on. Edison was both. So now, both of you suggest that in the last 20 years or so, um, Edison's reputation has taken a little bit of a hit. One of the most notorious things I think that people blame on Edison is the electrocution of a circus elephant named Topsy in 1903. So what is the truth about that? So Topsy was this elephant, elephant at Coney Island in 1903, mistreated by its handler. It killed someone and was essentially sentenced to death. The question was, how would Topsy be killed? The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals got involved. And so they thought electrocution combined with some injections of medicines that would lull it to sleep, essentially, would, would work properly. And the New York Edison Company, which was the successor to the original Edison Company established in 1881, Two men from that came out and set up the electrocution. And then the Edison Film Company sent out a film crew. Now, in neither case was Edison personally involved, but Edison Films, which you can see on the Library of Congress website, including Topsy, all have copyrighted by Thomas A. Edison. And there's this strong belief amongst a large number of people when they see an Edison film that Edison himself was busy filming whatever it was that they're seeing. I agree. It's a, it's a case where that, for, for you know, a segment of the population today, it illustrates just how low will Edison go in mm. pursuit of greed, in pursuit of money, in sort of proving that he, he's the great industrialist. So now, today, Edison is often compared to someone that some people consider to be his nemesis, Serbian-American inventor Nikola Tesla. So what can you both tell us about their relationship and about how people think about that relationship today? So I always tell folks as the Tesla, bi Tesla biographer that before Tesla, you had electric lighting. And that is thanks to Thomas Edison and the incandescent bulb that we've been talking about prior to this. After Tesla, you have electric light and power because for the first time or you begin to be able to have the ability to use electricity not just to illuminate your home, your business, but also to use electricity to power things in your home or your business. You can have a washing machine. At the time, during the Battle of the Currents, people would periodically sort of kind of compare Edison and Tesla and say, one guy is the DC guy, Edison, one guy – Tesla is the AC guy. But for the most part, the newspaper stories often would, would lead with headlines about the two wizards. In other words, that hmm. Edison and Tesla were both seen as being these standard bearers for electrical or technological progress. Yeah, they were kind of pitted against each other in the press. Um, but, but one doesn't see a, a strong personal animus between them. It's only, I think, in retrospect that we really get wound up about this idea that they were arch enemies and that Edison was just determined to, you know, do anything he could to basically destroy, destroy Tesla. So 
how does it come about now that people see the two of them as opposed to each other and one a good guy and the other maybe not so good a guy? How, where do you think that comes from? So I have a, a sort of a cultural theory about this, and that is for the success of, of any technology in the modern economy um, in, the, in the 19th and 20th century, you've got two types of people. You've got to have the visionaries that have that brilliant idea, tie it to wishes and dreams begin to actually make it work. And then you need the hard-nosed types that are basically actually going to build the business, scale up the system, drive down the costs, make things happen. And when the economy's doing all right, then then guys like Ed- Edison, and you could also throw Henry Ford, they're seen as, as being acceptable heroes. When the economy turns soft or you go through a recession like we just did recently, all of a sudden, you begin to look around for those visionaries that are going to bring up the technology that is going to get us out of the hmm. current set of, of social and economic problems. And so Tesla is, is now much more regarded as, as a hero. And that's where we are with, you know, sadly with, with Edison in the popular culture. He's, hmm. he's the villain that we, we have to have in order to elevate the, uh, the heroes. So I think there's something to that. Um, I think there, there's uh, another element to that as well, uh, which is the way we think about heroes and villains in the culture. And I think that period of the late 60s and 1970s, filmmaking and other uh, parts of uh, popular culture were sort of thinking about the relationship of people to their government and to big corporations, right? And so there's a way in which Edison came to represent, <clears throat> excuse me, represent the, the large corporation because this Edison name is all over the place still today. Mm-hmm. And Tesla uh, became this hero who was thwarted by, you know, the powers the bee, which is sort of the conspiracy theory that's become sort of our everyday experience of the way the world works. So what happens when you offer this kind of interpretation to Tesla fans? Well, my experience has been that people who know the Tesla Edison mythology know what they know. The Tesla's the geek, the inventor, Edison is just this businessman who stole ideas. When I offer to show people uh, the Edison notebooks, they say, doesn't matter, right? <laughs> I know that Edison just stole all those ideas. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. My, my basic experience in 15 years of writing, writing and researching Tesla was this is I would meet Tesla fans. You know, I, I finally just kind of reached a point where I sort of said, here's the deal, Tesla fans. <laughs> you have your Tesla. He serves whatever mythic work that he does need for you. Just let's be fair. I get to have my Tesla that is grounded in historical facts. <laughs> now I'm sure I will get some hate mail. Bernie Carlson is a historian at the University of Virginia and the author of Tesla, Inventor of the Electrical Age. Paul Israel is the director and general editor of the Edison Papers at Rutgers University. If there's someone whose reputation you'd like us to discuss, let us know at backstoryradio.org. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger.
This episode of Backstory was produced by David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishash, Sequoia Carrillo, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Our show features music from Ketza, Pottington Bear, and Jazar. And as always, thanks to the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.